another reason to like and follow us on Facebook. The mobile Facebook app, you can listen to the podcast there for free. So if you ever miss an episode of Law Enforcement Today show, it's always on the mobile Facebook app. You know the one on your phone, which is free. It's easy to access the podcast and great articles, much more. By the way, feel free to send me a message. Say hello. If I can help you, let me know. That's on our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. Be sure to click like and follow. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. Calling us from North Carolina, we have Scott Medlin on the phone. Scott is a police officer. He's an active duty officer, so we can't say what agency he works for. Scott, thanks so much for being a guest on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Very much appreciated. Oh, I appreciate it. This is a great opportunity. Thank you. In addition to policing, you've also written a couple books, correct? Yes, sir. I have. What are they called? My recent one is 101 Health Tips for Police Officers, How to Be Physically, Mentally, Socially, and Spiritually Fit for Duty. And the first one I wrote when I unfortunately heard that more police officers committed suicide than uh, actually died in the line of duty. That book is entitled Mental Health Fight of the Heroes in Blue. It'll teach you how to mentally survive working as a police officer. I'm all for helping officers and any other person who needs help during these very stressful times where it's, it's clearly been, a, been an issue of mental health and motivation. Yeah, and a lot of people are suffering. Uh, and you're absolutely right about uh, our law enforcement people. Before we start talking about that, uh, where can people get your books? They're both on Amazon. All you have to do is go to Amazon Scott, and type in my name, Scott Medlin, or, or the titles of the books. I put them at a very affordable price. Let's just put it that way. All right, good. So, uh, again, this has been an issue for a long time. I, I started policing in 1980. Yeah, I'm an old guy. I just had a birthday, and I tell people I'm a lot older than I ever thought I'd be, uh, but a lot younger <laughs> than uh, a lot of other folks. The good news is, Scott, when I was a rookie police in, a, in the academy, they said the average life expectancy for a Baltimore police was 52 at that time wow. and they would usually die within two years of retiring so me i retired young at 33 got hurt and injured retired and i <laughs> i want a lot more years yes yes it's it's crazy how how law enforcement ages people so quick and a lot of i hear a lot of officers talk about well i need to just embrace the suck and last till retirement one you're not guaranteed to get there two statistically speaking just like you said it it Law enforcement, on average, don't last long after retirement. No, I think the current average, I think, is, don't quote me on this, it's either 58 or 68 for law enforcement. And uh, the average life expectancy for males across the United States is 78. So we're about 10 years shy. And a lot of what you're going to talk about, uh, the stress, uh, a lot of things people don't hear about, but a lot of it is, I hate to say it's self-induced. It's a sedentary job. I tell people policing for me was 
hours and hours of boredom and then just moments of life and death adrenaline and that you'd climb yeah. that ladder up and down multiple times a shift um and and that takes a toll on you oh absolutely and it definitely does uh, what i learned when researching particularly in my first book mental health fight of the heroes in blue i had no idea that sitting in a car with all that weight on you from the duty belt and the vest and and radio and gun and all, just all this stuff I had no idea that sitting in a car can, and sitting for hours upon hours can lead to diverticulitis, inflammation, cancer, all kinds of things. I had no idea. And I mean, all those years I was on patrol, just a brief nine years, I just, it's crazy how I was thinking, wow, the t- on the rainy nights when I sat in my car most of the shift, I was doing more harm to myself than, than, than I knew. And the other thing is, all those things, those health hazards are real. The other one that's guaranteed for people to spend a lot of time in a patrol car over many years is a horrible attitude. And that's something that we can all work on changing. Yes, absolutely. Uh, get out there, talk to people, just don't be that, that person that arrives only when people call 911. Uh, but also, uh, police officers have to realize that, and I'm, I know we're all a hard bunch, uh, not willing to admit that we're human, but but the more we're aware of these things, the more it's like, hey, I'm doing harm to myself. I got to do something good for myself and for others. Absolutely. Point well taken. One of the things, and I want to ask you, I'll phrase this as a question. I've been told, and in my career, uh, it took a while afterwards, but you see the people at their worst, in the worst possible scenarios, and you deal with the worst of the worst most of the time. Has that been your experience? Yes, uh, particularly when I was on canine just for four years. I, the, the canine officers were called to the high-risk calls, and you, it was just to a point where it's like, really, someone could commit that crime? Really, someone could act this violent towards us? It, it, yes, I agree with that 100%. Part of what I s- struggled with for a long time, Scott, and, and a lot of people listening need to understand this, it took a conscious effort on my part. But most of the people that lived in the area where I worked didn't have encounters with the police. I never met them. The closest we'd come to any kind of encounter is me waving or saying hello when I had a rare opportunity to get out of the car and walk foot. Most of the time was either dealing with chronic habitual offenders, alcohol, drugs, criminal behavior, or people who are victimized by crime. Absolutely. And the repeat offenders are the ones that I find the most frustrating because they do these, whether it's just being that person who's always drunk and intoxicated, uh, disrupting the peace of the neighborhood, or the ones that are continuously assaulting wives, girlfriends in, in typical situations, or the ones committing actual violent crime and they just in and out of jail and you're constantly dealing with it, it gets a little frustrating. You begin to think, am I doing this for, for the right reasons? Is this just going to keep going on? Uh, and then, so, so you deal with that. So that's just a bunch of negativity. And if you're not careful, you start to become negative. So that's why I, I really, I, I overall like the mentality, the, the approach nowadays of get to know your community. One, because if the community knows you, they're more willing to talk to you when something does go bad. But it also helps police to realize there's more people out there than just the ones you're continuously dealing with. Absolutely. And a lot of this has to do, when we, we return from break, we're going to talk about Scott's career. Uh, but a lot of this has to do with manpower and funding. And, of course, there's a big movement across the United States for those who've been under a rock about defunding police. Here's what happens. We hear a term all the time, 
community policing, which, by the way, is what I was taught in the very beginning. We just called it policing. It was no community. It was just regular good old-fashioned policing. When you start cutting them out of manpower because of defunding, you have less people available that to cover a larger area, more calls for service, and you see them less, so there's less community involvement. And that is exact opposite of what people are looking for, I believe. Uh, yes, exact opposite. I think to those who say it, it just sounds good because they think that, unfortunately, I believe this perception is, has become that police officers are dangerous. Will we and be able to account for the 1% who have, unfortunately, acted out of line or dehumanized people and, and ultimately led to some unruly, unjust deaths? We, we cannot take that back, but what we can do going forward is act that much better so that we can hopefully shed light on the fact, look, defunding's not the way. You That's need, right. We're taking a short more, break. We are talking with Scott Medlin, police officer. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. Ever find yourself in a situation where you can't listen to the whole Law Enforcement Today Show? Never fear. Past episodes are available online as a podcast, and you can listen for free. That's right. The Law Enforcement Today podcast is free. Do a Google search for Law Enforcement Today podcast, or simply go to letradioshow.com and click the Be Heard tab. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Missed an episode of Law Enforcement Today? You don't have to anymore because now you can listen to it on Podopolo, the free new app that makes listening anytime, anywhere so easy. Catch up on shows you've missed and chat with John J. Wiley right there too. Download for free on the Apple or Google Play stores. That's Podopolo. And John J. Wiley wants to hear from you inside Podopolo. Return conversation with Scott Medlin, police officer and also an author on the Law Enforcement Today show. Uh, he's an active duty officer in the state of North Carolina, so we can't say what department. Scott, before we went to break, we started talking about defunding police and community policing how the two don't go hand in hand. And you kind of hit on a point, I had to take a break, a very powerful point. People are saying defund the police and they really don't know what they're talking about. Oh, absolutely not. I I understand that there have been officers that have acted out of line and unfortunately some lives have been lost in isolated incidents that, and those people cannot be brought back. I get it and I will never defend an officer who acts out of line and, and unjust. Uh, but overall, to say defund the police, you're literally asking, you're literally asking for people to call 911 and expect maybe some help to come because manpower be cut so short, and then their training will be, maybe not be up to par, and you might not get an officer who's fully trained. There's many different risks with defund the police. I, right. it's, I, I could talk all day about it. The other thing is, look, I'm selfish. In, in America, when you call 911, let's just say you have a medical emergency. I say this all the time. Let's say your aunt has a heart attack and you call 911. Chances are the paramedics, the firefighters, they're a long ways away. They're inside a, a, their firehouse. The police are mobile. They're around. That'll be the first person on the scene will be a police officer, law enforcement officer. I want the best of the best showing up on my house. I want people who are the most qualified, the best trained showing up to handle my medical emergency. When you start defunding and you start really attacking police, the people who are the best and have other options are going to opt for other options. Better pay, better working conditions, and less stress. That's one of my big concerns that if this, if this, push continues with momentum 
the police officers who felt a calling to be police officers to protect others, serve others, be there, and put themselves in the line of danger, they they, they will they will they will just say, you know what, uh, enough, and then we will get just whoever can be hired, and that's going to create even more just unimaginable trouble. In your career, uh, I know you've had transitions because we've talked before the interview in, in policing. Have you gone through stages where you go, look, I need to do something different. I love policing, but I, I can't handle this grind. I can't handle the stress. I'm ready for something else. It would come here and there, particularly the five-year mark. It was it was one of those where the, what I'd seen, the violence I encountered, the, the, scene, the crime scenes that bothered me, dealing with the same people over and over and over again, but arresting them for crimes they committed. Uh, yes, I was beginning to think, I, I don't know how much longer I can do this, but I, I stuck with it. And then there's been a few other times, but normally when that kind of stuff happens, I just refocus on why I got into it in the first place and realize who I am as a person. And I, feel, and I figure police work is the best way for me to offer good things to others and, and to protect them. Because I, when I call 911, I want good cops to show up. So I want to be that good cop to show up for other people. You said earlier in the conversation that you spent uh, quite a bit of time in canine division of your department so obviously you worked patrol before that that's how most departments are in the united states and then you gravitated towards canine did you see a big shift in your job responsibilities oh tremendously and even though it was very demanding of a job i enjoyed the challenge of having to find that large amount of drugs the challenge of tracking that criminal who ran away after assaulting someone or stealing a lot of merchandise from a store uh, and what i mean by tracking is when a, someone runs uh, they leave behind human odor the dog can put their nose to the ground and literally sniff out where the person went so the canine officer is in charge of finding them uh, uh, other things uh, going to high risk fugitives warrant services stuff like that i really i really enjoyed that stuff but yes it was a lot more demanding and a lot riskier working on the canine unit you know i'm a big dog person i've had dogs in my life for as long as i can remember and my wife and i we have rottweilers and i love dogs i love working dogs i love canine dogs at least canine dogs but i'll be honest with you scott the responsibility of, of taking care of another partner uh, a human or or four-legged is awesome responsibility and i don't mean in a great way and the second one is and i'm joking about this but having a dog barking in my ear for eight hours a day or 10 hours a day i don't know if i can handle that <laughs> and i was so lucky that my dog was car aggressive oh he drove me nuts anytime someone got near to the car uh, citizens would walk up and ask for directions and he would just start rah, 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 rah. <laughs> oh, oh i yeah. yell at my dogs like and i don't say this to be mean so don't take me the wrong way my wife is like you're being a dog my female will bark at every vehicle that goes down the street every vehicle <laughs> and i'm like it's the mailman he comes around at this time every day dynamite so <laughs> having that dog and i i love dogs I'm the type of guy, if I'm walking in a, a, a big box store and someone has a dog, I got to go say hello. Not so much to the people, to the dog. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, yeah, so it, I, I understand. My dog barked a lot. But having him with me, it was amazing how people would stop running. People would not fight. People would cooperate when they knew I had that dog. It absolutely amazed me how much people would cooperate with me. When they when they heard, uh, don't run, don't fight, or, or don't you know hold still, or I'll send the dog. It was absolutely amazing. It never failed. One time we ran into a house to catch a guy who ran from us, and we didn't know there were twenty, thirty people in the house. 
and they were all yelling and being belligerent towards us, but I had my dog with me, and nobody nobody got near us because the dog was there. So for that reason, I was grateful that he was a barking maniac. There's two things that could clear a crowd in my police career more than anything else. One was a 12-gauge shotgun racking around in there, and, and the other one was a police canine dog. Uh, and I say that jokingly. Uh, the dog would arrive, and the crowd would dissipate immediately. One dog. Yep. There could be 30 police there, and they'd all be going crazy. One dog, everything changes. The dynamics change totally. Uh, and that was a positive thing because it meant you didn't have to use force, and you got the job done, and everybody got to go home and, for lack of better words, enjoy their weekend and go about their business. However, I was always trained, and I never worked canine. Uh, back in the day, our department got the hyperactive German shepherds from, that were turned into animal shelters and worked with them and trained them. And not all made it, but one of the things we were taught early on is we never used canine dogs for crowd control, ever, ever. And that was because of the ghosts of like Selma and Birmingham, Alabama. All right. Now, I understand that. We have a big mall where I used to work when I was on canine. And crowds every now and then would get out of hand. And they would and they would ask me to come down there, and as well as as many officers as you possibly could. But once I got the dog out of the car, it was kind of odd at times. I didn't have to have him bark. People would just start yelling. They they have a dog. They have a dog. Like people are generally scared of a police dog. And I t- I try to tell people, look, you don't have to. They're they're not going. They're not just vicious attack animals. They're only they're, they are trained right. And if they are trained right, they are taught to bite on command and command right. only. And and a lot so, of that has to do with. And we'll talk about this when we return. A lot of this has to do with lessons learned in the past. And it's a team. It's the canine handler and the canine. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. The place to be online is our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. You'll get access to unique news articles, editorials, and so much more. That's Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. Don't go anywhere. I promise you, we'll be right back. Has this ever happened to you? You sign up for a free email newsletter, and within hours, you're receiving tons of spam. That won't happen when you subscribe for the free Law Enforcement Today radio show email newsletter. We won't spam you. No more than two emails a week. I promise. All subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign-up area. That's letradioshow.com. Current conversation with Scott Medlin. Scott is an active duty law enforcement officer. Let's just say he is in the state of North Carolina. Since he's active, he can't say what agency he works for. And by the way, that is absolutely normal. There's no hiding of anything here. Scott's also an author. He's gotten two books written. They're available on Amazon.com. We'll talk about that more later. During your police career, you wound up gravitating towards canine. How long did you work in canine? Not long. I was only on the unit for four years and worked in dog actively for three and a half. Now, that's that's a long time for a lot of people. That's like the length of college for normal people. People <laughs> like me had like three or four more years on college. Well, that's true. It was at least a few years, and I was, and I was grateful for it. But it got to a point where I was so wrapped up in the job, I let it become my identity, not what I did. It was, it was, it was who I was, or at least I thought it was. 
and unfortunately it started to take a toll on my family because I was so wrapped up in the job where I, I, I found a, a, had a, I was at a conflict where I had to just either give up my, my family or give up the job. And obviously the, I was going to give up that job. Without going into absolute specifics, family members, and I say this, please don't serve alone. Their, their families are involved and they pay a price. All of our officers, if you've been on the job for any period of time, you're going to change. Things are going to happen. You're going to see too much stuff. You'll be the victim of violence yourself. Uh, you'll have to be involved in violent incidents, which will bother you. Those things come with the territory, but they can really invade the family life. And it sounds like that's what was happening with you. It was. It, it absolutely was. I would, When I was younger, officer, I was told, don't bring the work home. Well, you physically and mentally can't handle it. You experience stuff. You see stuff that humans are not meant to go through. You have no choice but to bring it home. That's where coping is a tremendous thing. You have to learn how to cope. Well, I was not coping very well. I would just go from running a high-risk warrant call with the canine, and I would just come home and just it be in a bad attitude because I wasn't decompressed from the, from the call. And families absolutely are affected by law enforcement just as the officers are. One of the terms I use from my own experience, Scott, is that there came a point, and no matter how hard I tried, I, I used to use a psychological thing when I would take the, the, the soft body armor, the, the Velcro. In my mind, it was as if I was changing from police J to husband and father J. And I was very successful at that for a long time until I wasn't anymore. And I became distant. I became isolated from loved ones. Uh, is that what you're talking about, what happened with you? Yes, there was a point of that. And I actually point out that in my book, Mental Health Fight of the Heroes in Blue. When you start experiencing antisocial or asocial tendencies, there's a, there's a reason to be concerned about that. The job's getting to you. And police are human. We, we are affected by the job. Uh, absolutely. There's, there are times, and I call it blue sadness. As a matter of fact, I wrote an article about it. Uh, and Go to letradioshow.com. Just search for blue sadness. There are times, and the term sadness is kind of overused and kind of vague, but where I'm okay, there's nothing going on, I'm fine, and I've been retired from police work for a long time. And then all of a sudden, my mood starts to change, and I get depressed, uh, for lack of better words. I'm not talking about clinical depression. I'm talking about overcome with sadness. And it's something could trigger a commercial, a scene in a movie, uh, memories of the past, seeing kids killed, all, all those things. Yep, absolutely. It's, it's the brain. There's a, there's a phrase I learned, neurons that fire together, wire, wire together. And basically in, in your brain, when you witness traumatic events, the brain just sears those memories into your brain and through those memories, like everyone remembers where they were on 9-11 and then that's a memory. Well, that memory stirs up an emotion and you feel that emotion whenever you think of that memory and your brain just plays that memory over and over again because it doesn't want to you to go through that again. So it rehearses how to protect you from it. And police officers experience trauma left and right. So yes, when you experience all that stuff along with long hours, the depression can set in, PTSD can set in, anxiety can set in. It's just, it's a whole slew of things that can set in. And you are absolutely right. That happens to so many segments of our population. Uh, I met firefighters, EMTs, God bless them, they never get a break from it. Corrections officers, right. dispatchers, and then people with everyday nine to five jobs because, you know, trauma and, and horrific things don't just affect police. I think the difference is 
that you and I in policing, we see it every day, and we have to respond to it and deal with it. Absolutely. The frequency of it is just at an unhealthy rate. And I'm only saying unhealthy if an officer doesn't deal with it. But it is amazing how uh, people that are not in law enforcement, first responder work, uh, combat zones and military, they might experience a handful. You can count on one hand how many times they'll see something traumatic. But with police, just like you said, it just happens so frequently. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. So you saw these things happening with you. Uh, you began to change. You started having some problems. And specifics are not important. You started having some uh, problems in family life. or started invading your family life. And you decided to make some changes. Am I correct? Yes. And I, I'm open about it. Uh, basically, my marriage was falling apart. A lot of cops go through that. Whereas I was not going to let that job get in the way. Unfortunately, sometimes police will say family first, family first. But they live for the job. And, and unfortunately, the family continues to suffer. I was not going to be that way. It was a very hard decision to give up the police canine. I mean, he was my partner for three and a half years. I spent more time with him and going through more things with him than, than anybody. Uh, and it was very hard, and it was a dream job. But uh, I, I started to notice things, started noticing things were falling apart, could not handle it because life goes on after policing, and your family's there, not the department you work for. Well, that's true. The minute you retire, you're you're obsolete, and you were yesterday's news, and that's what happened to me. I, I was talking with a friend who's an active duty law enforcement officer just this week, and he's he's changed agency a few times, but he's spent his entire career, in, what we call patrol, in uniform, and he's getting to the point where he's almost forty. He said, "Listen, I'm I'm going off the streets, becoming a detective," and I, I'm like, "It's about time." You know, the the patrol game, uh, the uniform policing game, is a young person's activity it takes a pounding on you mentally and physically yes it does i got sick a lot we rotated two weeks of days two weeks of nights 12 hour shifts i would get sick about three to four times a year I mean, nausea colds acid reflux i mean just i was down for the count so many times with those rotating shifts and dealing and i was in a busy district in the city it really did it took a toll on me uh, it, it really did, and it will take a toll on officers. So I encourage them to have good, consistent mental and physical habits, to which I illustrate in my book, uh, write about in my book, 101 Health Tips for Police Officers. There's a whole list of things you can do to help your mental and physical well-being. But also, I would encourage officers, if you're feeling sick, if, you need, if you're starting to feel stressed, take time off. There's nothing wrong with it. When you're recognizing these things happening to you in your police career, uh, you start to make some changes. Where did you head to next? I pleaded for help, basically, and went to, and I was reassigned to these schools. At the time, it was a more family-friendly schedule, so I was a school resource officer at a very busy school. And the school resources officers are definitely under attack. Uh, again, political. I don't do a partisan politics show, uh, but there are segments of our society that scream that police should not be in schools at all. Well, how do you feel about that? I believe that all it would take is for one gunman to return to a school, to go to a school, and start killing students, which is, I hate to say it, it doesn't seem like it's going to stop, and I don't want it to happen, but all of a sudden police are going to be needed back in the schools. Let's not forget why police are there. They are there to protect the students. That's the first reason SROs were put in schools, to protect the students from an outside threat on campus. And what's great about SROs now is they're more of mentors and help for the students that are in bad places. 
We're going to take a short break. We're talking with Scott Medlin. He is an active duty law enforcement officer in the state of North Carolina. This is the Law Enforcement Today show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. One of the most frequent questions we see is, where can I find great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Yes, we do. So we decided to start our own podcast network on Law Enforcement Today. That's right. You can find top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and our free app. Go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you'll find the LET Podcast Network. We'll be adding more podcasts from first responders and more. Again, to find the Law Enforcement Today Podcast Network, go to letradioshow.com and click on the Be Heard in our menu or download our free app today at letradioshow.com. Back to our conversation with Scott Medlin, an active duty law enforcement officer in the state of North Carolina, also an author of a couple books. We'll talk about the books again a little bit later. Uh, you're, before we end the break, you started talking about you, you gravitated to becoming a school resource officer. And when I went to the police academy, we, did, we weren't armed for the majority of it. We didn't get handguns till the end, but we're, we're training. And then it took a big adjustment getting used to carrying a handgun all the time because we were required to be armed all the time in the city where I worked. And then after retiring, I got used to not carrying a handgun. And it was very liberating for me at the time. And then Sandy Hook, uh, Newtown, Connecticut, the school massacre occurred. And I changed immediately. Scott, I watched that and I was thinking... I know me. If I'm driving down the street and somebody that happened around me, I'd go in there. And if I couldn't, at least with a handgun, try to defend the kids, I'd be useless. And from that day on, I've done the things I'm supposed to do to be able to to carry, and I'm carrying almost all the time. As a school resource officer, you said before the break, the number one priority is protecting the kids. Oh, yes, 100%. And unfortunately, with these school shootings going on, uh, they're not shooting. Shootings for sport. With these school killings going on, I mean, students actively killed. Yes, you need armed presence with a police officer in the schools, it's, and I stand by that. One other thing, I, and I'm not an expert in this field. My wife and I have talked about this many times, and I've talked about it in the show before. If you have an active shooter somewhere, and I'm not a big fan of that term for the same reasons you just described, but everybody goes into something i think mike tyson said everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth if you have Absolutely. someone who's an aggressor and they they are going to school and they want to start shooting children that's their plan they've got it mapped out in their head until you put fire down range and and move them into a defensive posture you the kids are in jeopardy and if you don't have someone there that can do that is willing to do that is trained to do that a lot of people are going to die absolutely and when, when i was in the marines deployed to iraq we were always taught when when you're in an ambush, you fight. You don't just hunker down. You fight because that split second where you fight back, you throw off the attackers. They're like, whoa, what is going on here? Same thing with a school attacker. They go into a school and they encounter, um, and they encounter fire back at them, then it, it's, it's that much more in the, in the officer's favor and for the safety of the students. But to, to have just nobody in these schools nowadays with the threat that's always there nationwide uh, is is beyond me, and I'm I'm glad that you are carrying, and I and I I'm a strong believer in the right people carrying need to be carrying because unfortunately these armed killers are not going away. No, and and by the way, the school massacres have been going on for a very long time. 
they've been going less frequently, but they were happening in the early 1900s. It's not new, and it's not just a strictly American problem. But another thing that you guys do, when I say guys, that's men and women, the school resource officers, you also do a lot of things like mentoring that a lot of people don't realize, do they? Oh, absolutely. When I first came to the schools after nine years on patrol, you know, I was a patrol mentality, enforce the law, enforce the law, enforce the law. And a veteran SRO told me, he said, look, you're going from more of, you're going from more of responsive and enforcing to preventative and mentoring. And I took those words to heart and I took, a, I, I took that approach when I started in the schools. Describe what you mean by mentoring. It could be something as simple yet profound as I could see that a student was having a really bad day. And if, if we let it go unaccounted for, and just rather than, rather than ignoring them, say, oh, they'll get over it, I'd pull them aside. I'd say, hey, do you, do you need a moment? Uh, anything's better than you getting in trouble. And most of the times our kids were like, yeah, here's what's bothering me. And, and, and all kinds of situations. Uh, there was one situation in particular where a student, of, when I was being introduced to the school where I was going to be the SRO, the outgoing SRO had me in the cafeteria. And she was showing me around the cafeteria. Well, the guidance counselor of the school, who happened to be a high school classmate of mine, she was there with us in the cafeteria. She wrapped her arm around the student and said, hey, do you want to meet your new SRO? I just saw pain in his eyes. He, he said he violently shook his head no. And I looked at the outgoing SRO. I said, what, what's wrong? What, why why did, he, did he react like that? And she said he had a family member that died in police custody. And I thought, oh, that makes sense. So as a police officer, that I've, a good police officer that I've always tried to be, empathy and, and sympathy when appropriate and respect. I didn't crowd this kid, none of that. I didn't say, hey, I'm a police officer. You need to respect me. Absolutely not. How the heck is a 12-year-old supposed to wrap his head around a family member dying in police custody? He can't. So he didn't, he didn't like me at all. But I would have been the first person to jump in front of him had an attacker come on campus. So I would see this student in, in and out of the hallways. He would look at me, but every time he saw my uniform and me, obviously he just thought about the death the, of the family member. And, and I don't blame him. I can understand. I kept my distance. I would smile. But eventually it got to a point where I did have to interact with him. Uh, three students, including him, were suspected of having a weapon on campus, and I, as the SRO, obviously had to address it. I patted down the first two just to make sure they didn't have a weapon, and, and they didn't. Well, then I unfortunately had to forcibly detain that student in particular. It was one of the worst days of my career. I, I never wanted to have to forcibly detain a juvenile. I, no, no, forget that. But I did my job. Fortunately, he didn't have a weapon. But the anger and the sadness were just ramped up that much more. And I just hurt for him. I really did. I was like, this is not good. He served a suspension time. He came back. I kept my distance. Fortunately, there was a teacher there who he knew real well, who he knew real well and I was getting along with. And she, she and I got, worked really well together at that school. She would just tell him, look, Officer Medlin was doing his job. He has no personal problem with you. He likes you. He, he has no personal problem with you. He's just doing his job. Well, that young man was part of a mentorship program. And the first time I walked into that mentorship program in, in a meeting they were having, his demeanor just changed. He got so upset when I walked in. So I hung out for a few minutes, but I could tell it was bothering him that bad. I walked out. Felt really bad for him. After that use of force incident, that mentorship program invited me to play in a basketball game. With the, with the students that were part of the program, one of which being that student in particular, he was still with the program. 
Well, he got to see me out of uniform, and I'm horrible at basketball. He and he was on the team playing against me, so he he dribbled all around me. He shot around me. He did everything he could and just totally schooled me in basketball. And at the end of the game, I'll never forget it. We just we shook hands, and he smiled at me. And from that point on, I was there for him, and he had a friend in me. All it took was a basketball game. It. I think it took me being be exercising the the communication skill that all police officers need empathy being able to put yourself in one's shoes so I, I never crowded him i never i never you know like i said i never told him like hey i'm a police officer you need to respect me i never said any of that stuff so through empathy respect and, and backing away yes that basketball game i think we saw each other as people and he he saw me just out of uniform and it totally changed the element and, and uh, later on you guys did something else together very quickly Yes, we did. I took him to a veteran's breakfast one time at the school. It was a veteran's event at the school, and he had to fill out his name, uh, a student attending, and then which veteran he was attending with. So he put my name, and then it put relation on the column for a relationship. He put Officer Medlin, friend. That's, that's all it takes. changed my life, and, and I'm so proud of him. And the reality is that's, that's what I was raised on, Scott. That's what we called policing back in the day. And it wasn't complicated. It wasn't fancy. It wasn't psychological. It's just humans interacting. Uh, and you've written a couple of great books. Again, what are the name of your books? 101 Health Tips for Police Officers and Mental Health Fight of the Heroes in Blue. And where can people buy those books? Go to Amazon.com. Just type in those the titles of the books or Scott Medlin, and they'll bring the two books up. And you spell your last name M-E-D-L-I-N? M-E-D-L-I-N, yes, sir. I'd imagine if you do a Google search for Scott Medlin books, they'll come up that way as well. Are you working on anything other than policing right now? Yes. Uh, I actually have just filed for uh, and, and started a LLC, LEO Motivation, so I will be generating online courses for morale, motivation, mental health, as as much as I'm qualified to, to speak about. And, and I will pursue what I've written in these books. And whenever people can gather again, whenever COVID ends, maybe in the year 2032, <laughs> I, would very much, I would very much like to be a motivational speaker at police seminars and conferences and, and to help police officers understand you are not alone. And through these daily habits you can have and, and through more awareness of how your mind and body are affected by the job, you can do that much better for yourself, your family, and the community that depends on you. Scott, you got to be motivated. Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Oh, it's an honor. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.